1: The world that I grew up in was dismantled because black people fought and demanded that Jim Crow be dismantled. If we want a better world, we have to fight and organize for it. I don't expect the um, 1% to do it. I don't expect the billionaires to do it. I don't expect the presidents and the government to do it. I expect the people who want the change, they have to organize and fight for it, and that's that's the only way it's going to happen.
0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast by what used to be called the Haas Institute and which is now called the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of this podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with two guests about a year-long initiative on campus marking the 400th anniversary of the start to slavery in North America. The initiative includes weekly events with scholars, activists, artists from around the country reflecting on the enduring legacies of slavery in Jim Crow, looking at the civil rights era, our current era, and also trying to imagine a future based on justice, reconciliation, and belonging. Our two guests are Denise Hurd and Waldo Martin. Denise is a professor in the School of Public Health here at UC Berkeley who is leading this campus initiative. She also happens to be our associate director here at the Othering and Belonging Institute. And Waldo Martin is a professor of US history here at Berkeley who is also involved in the organizing around this initiative. Denise, maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about the initiative, the impetus for it, and how you were able to bring it here to Berkeley.
2: Um, well, the, the commemoration of the 400th anniversary of slavery, it's part of a national initiative to recognize, you know, this long and really, really important time in our history. We brought it to Berkeley uh, because, you know, it has been recognized nationally. There's a, actually a commission on it. But I think it, you know, a strong impetus for bringing it here was it resonates with um, the, you know, the goals of really understanding social inequality and addressing social inequality, Um, and looking at the slavery experience is incredibly important for understanding that for African Americans, but not just for African Americans. Uh, I think you know, extending to all people of color and many marginalized groups. So it resonated with the interest, you know, that I have as an anthropologist, and um, so in my role in my teaching, but also in the role that I have with the Othering and Belonging Institute.
1: As a historian, um, 1619 is a benchmark. And uh, the coming of the first Africans to Virginia um, establishes uh, an economic system that transforms the new world and makes uh, the uh, uh, what comes to be the United States uh, in a lot of ways the United States and so it seems to me only uh, natural and uh, to think through that moment and to think through the long history of that moment and the uh, meanings and ramifications of that history so when I was asked to be a part of this uh, Effort, I jumped at it because it seems to me that this is a moment in our nation's history that we need to reflect on and reflect deeply on.
0: Uh, Denise, you had told me previously about what this initiative meant to you personally. Um, You gave some stories about your family uh, growing up as sharecroppers, your parents, and um, you you told me some experiences in, in your classroom too. Uh, with your students, bringing in um, migrant workers, and you're making some of the connections. So I was wondering if you could uh, share some of those stories uh, with our listeners.
2: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I grew up hearing about stories from the South. I was raised in Chicago, but my mother was uh, born and raised in Tennessee, and um, her family—they were a family of sharecroppers. So I just grew up hearing about their, you know, their life in the South, which was really rough. Uh, There's a lot of poverty. Um, There, uh, you know, the Jim Crow South had very, very little for black people. And so my mother was not able to finish school, for example. Uh, She talked about wearing flower sack dresses and things like that. So I grew up hearing about that, you know, that legacy. And, you know, she moved as a teenager, Her her and her family moved as a teenager to Chicago. And I didn't set foot into the South until I was, um, you know, way past grown. And I think my, my, my parents wanted to protect us from some of the experiences they'd had in the South. Uh, and as someone teaching, you know, I'm working with uh, a lot of students of color, uh, undocumented immigrants. Uh, you know, and as I've worked with them, I've realized that some of the stories that my mother shared about her lifestyle about, you know, basically forced labor, working in the fields, working day in and day out, working as children. Um, These are the same kind of stories that my students are sharing with me right now. And so uh, there's just a commonality in looking at that experience back, you know, when my mother was a child and current experiences of, say, um, you know, agricultural workers right now. Uh, And so it's it's given me some insights into what you know what other people of color are going through similarly with the criminalization of black people in the post-reconstruction period there's a criminalization of immigration right now and so I think those are some common experiences that uh, I explore in my teaching.
0: Waldo do you want to share a story? Just one uh I think
1: unlike uh Denise uh I grew up in the Jim Crow South. I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is considered to be a more enlightened uh, uh, sort of area of the South. Uh, I would question that. But um, my – and I I self-describe as a child of late Jim Crow. Um, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and I experienced – the dismantling of Jim Jim Crow. I went to all black schools, for example, until I was uh, in college. Uh, I went to Duke uh, as, a, as an undergraduate, but before then, my first 12 years, I was in all black schools. And integration came to my hometown, uh, Greensboro, um, four or five years after I had graduated high school. So the stories that uh, Denise referred to are pervasive in African American folk history, in African American personal history, in the in the narratives and experiences of people that in my own family and um, you know others. What what I would say is that um, as a historian, I'm really interested in how people um, struggle how people persevere, how they transcend, how they make it, how they get over. And um, wh- what I really think is important is some people, like Denise's uh, mother and her family, chose to, 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 to leave. And they obviously did the right thing. Some people chose to stay and struggle. And um, my family, Uh, chose to stay and struggle because they saw pathways forward. Um, If you don't see pathways (laughs) forward, then, you know, what's the point in staying? So I, I think the experiences that I witnessed and talk a lot about in my scholarship is sort of why some people stay and what they do when they stay. I think one of the consequences of people staying is the modern civil rights movement, which is a southern-based movement. You know, It transforms the south. But it's also a national movement. There's an African-American civil rights movement in Chicago. There's an African-American civil rights movement in the Bay Area in the west. It's all over the place. But the classic way in which we think about the movement is it's a southern movement. And those are the people who decided to stay. for whatever reason, and and, and, and they fought on that turf. But I think it's also important to understand that the people who moved to Chicago uh, struggled. They fought. And um, so when I think about um, my own sort of personal struggle, I think a lot of it has to do with the ways in which African Americans and um, the people that I uh, um, study a lot are strivers, they have faith, they have hope, and they have invested in not only, you know, so their, their own families, but in others, in communities and in neighborhoods and in uh, not just sort of struggles that might benefit black people, but would benefit all people. So I grew up in this world where, I mean, it was, was, was largely black and we didn't have a lot of interaction with a lot of other different kinds of people. But there was always this understanding that what you were doing was bigger than you and that every time you stepped out of the house you not only represented the family but you represented the race and you uh, had to be uh, and represent and so um, you know my own sense is that as I think back on my life, I grew up as a uh, grew up born and raised in the projects, housing projects and so, for the first 12 years of my life. And so just coming out of that experience, moving to uh, a middle-class neighborhood when my parents were able to pull together the money to move, um, and then sort of comparing and contrasting that project's experience with sort of what happened when we moved to this other neighborhood and thinking about class, how class uh, influenced my experience. Uh, You know, I'm really... Grateful for my experience, but also think that in a lot of ways, I've been blessed and that uh, a lot of people did not have the advantages, did not have a lot of things fall their way and a, a lot of these people, in my own experience, were my friends and you know they, their lives went in other directions.
2: Yeah, well, um, I think the perspective Waldo is sharing is really interesting, and I want to point out that um, moving when my parents moved to the north, Um, And, you know, I didn't know life at all in the South, but uh, I think it wasn't that they cut ties from the South at all, because I think they recreated a lot of the cultural forms that they had grown up with in the South. And Chicago was and is very heavily racially segregated. So I felt like the world that I was growing up in, especially the world that meant the most in terms of family and church and community and neighborhood, those were all black, too. It's just that we had access to institutions that were supposed to not formally Jim Crow. Um, But, you know, we were able to go to integrated schools. There was health care and I think healthcare in the South, my mother had mentioned that there were no doctors that black people could go to. And so there was access to some services in the North. But at the same time, the culture that Waldo is talking about was alive in urban cities. And, um, you know, the faith, the struggling, uh, my mother, our education was primary. And so, uh, she put a high premium on her finishing her own education and having, uh, st- you know, striving for a, a good education for her kids. So I think that it was a sort of, a, as Waldo mentioned, the struggle took place all over America, it started in the South, and the people from the South brought, brought the same culture, same lifestyle, same values to those urban cities,
0: Bringing the conversation back to the initiative here at Berkeley, if you look at our website, you can you see that there's already been a couple dozen events, and in um, the next semester we have many more, and they cover a wide range of areas. Uh, you know, you're looking at social issues, uh, culture, uh, even technology, health. Um, we had the first Surgeon General of California, Nadine Burke, who gave a talk at your school, the School of Public Health. So, can you talk a little bit about about that and and what the idea was uh, uh, behind bringing people uh, bringing people from all kinds of different backgrounds?
2: Well, we started off the year and it was intentional. Our kickoff was an all day symposium, and the purpose of that symposium was to get us grounded in terms of slavery, you know the experience of slavery, the meaning of slavery, the aftermath of slavery, and then um, as Waldo has talked about, the resistance and struggles that um, African-Americans had have initiated from the moment they stepped uh, on American shores. And we wanted it to be all day as a grounding experience. And, you know, I think it, it was. Uh, people still talk about um, how momentous it was. And I, th- I think it set the tone, um, you know, the chancellor the uh, Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and a number of administrators were there as well as faculty, students, and staff. I don't know, Waldo, what were your thoughts?
1: Um, For me, it was uh, a beautiful moment. Uh, It was a very enlightening moment. I thought that the presentations were uh, quite outstanding. The the big takeaway that I had uh, was just... um, Sort of sitting back, thinking about um, how how African American experiences, how African American histories, are really ground zero for thinking about the American experience. Oftentimes, there's this sort of idea that when you're talking about people of color, when you're talking about uh, you know workers when you're talking about uh, people who don't have a lot of the the, the the power they don't have the they aren't necessarily the movers and the shakers at the top of the, the money tree or the political tree but if you if you're thinking about issues like freedom uh, equality justice um, you can't even begin to talk about those unless you center the experiences of African Americans because they've been at the forefront of freedom struggles, struggles around around issues of um, justice, democracy, equality. So it was just—and the topics ranged, but it was just so wonderful to hear people coming from different points of view, different angles— you know, reflect on how Africans became African Americans, and African Americans have become not only crucial to thinking about uh, what we are and, and who we are as Americans, but there's also, I think, this sort of push to think about sort of a global world history, and I think once again, African American experiences are crucial. If Af- if American experiences, uh, and they do if American experiences help shape world experiences, then clearly African-American experiences have to be factored into any sort of global or world historical representation of what this country is about. So what, what, what was also enlightening for me was to hear uh, sort of the, uh, the internationalist, global uh, range of the conversation. It wasn't just sort of a narrow... U.S. American centered, but it you know it ranged across centuries, it ranged across countries, um, and um, I, I thought it was quite amazing.
2: Yeah, and we followed we followed this symposium because that was an all day experience, and I think it was very grounding and immersive. And it, we it wasn't just you know scholarly talks. We also had poetry, we had music, we had. Dance and I mean it. It was a cultural experience that I. I think a lot of people felt like, wow, this is this is a new facet of Berkeley, and the thing about histor education in history is I think it's pretty limited um, in, in California. So that most people don't know that much about slavery. I mean, I'm a little bit self-taught. I'm not a historian. I'm an anthropologist, but I did research on the 19th century as a, lot, a large part of my um, doctoral education, and so I was self-taught on history. But, I, you know, I've just been learning a tremendous amount through this process. And we've had, you know, we followed the symposium with, I think the very next week or a couple of weeks after that, we had an incredible... Um, We heard an incredible story about a woman who lives in in this area, and she is a descendant of um, the person that wrote the first fugitive slave narrative. And she um, helped co-author with a literary scholar a new annotated version of that slave narrative. And then they did a film about that slave narrative. And they were absolutely incredible. It was so inspiring to see this was somebody that was working as an administrator at UC Berkeley for 13 years who also researched her ancestor and wrote this, helped write this new version of the slave narrative. And to see that experience and what that meant across time, across history, because the film was, it was as moving as anything you've seen in the theater. So that was I think we we did that like not 11 days later and then we followed that with Ibram Kendi who did a very contemporary talk on how to be an anti-racist and we had to move the venue um to Zellerbach to because of all the interest and that got that started a lot of conversation uh, you know among people people walk up to me and say I saw Ibram, and it's changed my life. I mean, it, and so, and then we've had other, you know, as you mentioned, a range of other kinds of events that have hit on, you know, aspects of like African American history I was unaware of. We had a woman, Monica White. Monica has worked with Freedom Farmers, and she talked about the rural areas and farms as places of organizing, as places of respite for organizers. Uh, who had lost their jobs might have lost their you know didn 't have a way to eat and, and so the the role of farms in liberation was was something that i hadn 't learned about, so we 've been able to bring amazing scholars uh, talking about you know unique areas um, that are you know important parts of the african American experience
0: uh, D- Denise, maybe you can talk a little bit about your own professional background. And how you see contemporary issues of uh, race and inequity uh, surfacing in your in in the school of public health? Uh, you know what, how the school addresses
2: that. As I mentioned, I started studying the nineteenth century when I was in graduate school because I was trying to understand, um, you know, the issues around uh, alcohol and drug use in the African American population. And as it turned out. The temperance movement and prohibition movement had enormous uh, influence on cultural perceptions of um, alcohol in the African-American population, in the American population as a whole. The temperance movement was part of the uh, abolition movement, and uh, there was an incredible black temperance movement that developed alongside the American temperance movement because of the close association of those two reform movements. However, Southern prohibition... Uh, was associated with uh, some of the worst periods of uh, racial violence uh, and also black the taking away of the black vote and so the black community left that as a major uh, issue around which they publicly rallied so anyway, that was what I was studying when i was um, when I was a graduate student i 'd say contemporarily you know um, i brought it was great to have the to be in the initiative right now, because I was able to use that as a framework for a class that I'm teaching right now on health inequalities. And some of the issues are so present. One of my students, we we were just recently talking about this, that some of the concepts in the 18th century, like for example, um, the belief that blacks feel no pain, the belief that black skin is thicker than white skin, or that black lung capacity is smaller than that of whites, appears right now in studies in the last two or three years of what medical students believe today and so that belief in the biological basis of race in biological inferiority um, uh, still permeates you know scientific and medical thought uh, and in addition the impact of something like segregation I mean we I think many of us are aware that educational facilities were, you know, under Jim Crow, but hospital facilities were under Jim Crow as well. And so under we've now reached a point after, I think, a brief period of integration where medical facilities have resegregated. So we're actually dealing with some of the same issues in healthcare care, you know, segregation of medical facilities, some of the beliefs um, that are holdovers from the thought that developed about African Americans during slavery, as well as uh, things like the you know, the mass incarceration of blacks in the aftermath of slavery. That's a reality that we're living with today, uh, is mass incarceration, and not just incarceration, but heavy policing uh, and surveillance of the black population that also developed uh, in the post-Reconstruction South. I mean, one of the things that I've learned about that I didn't know much about before, um, you know, looking at the initiative was how many black people lost their property as a, through the ethnic cleansing, the burning down of towns, you know, the lynchings and murders that drove people away from their property. That economic loss is tremendous. And so the historical wealth that, that whites have been able to build up, a lot of black people simply Um, you know, they lost their property. So if we look at the contemporary impact of those kinds of generational losses, not to mention historical trauma from that kind of violence, and I mean, we're seeing some of that now with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, and how the, the police killings today are taking their toll. Well people have been living with that kind of generational trauma from the lynchings and uh, you know for a number of years
0: well though can you 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 participated in the initiative you gave a talk and you also were one of the uh, speakers at the opening symposium so you gave a couple talks uh, around themes of resistance so can you tell us a little bit about those presentations um,
1: We've covered some of the material and the thing that I think we have not talked about that I want to emphasize is uh, sort of organized mass resistance, mass movements, social movements, um, how change actually happens, um, what might we do to make things better today. And um, my studies, um, my scholarship... And the evidence that I work with shows that um, if you want change, you have to be the agent of the change that you want. Um, Black people demanded change in the 50s and 60s. They fought and died for it, and that's why we got change. And it seems to me that we often have this view of change, that change is something that comes down from on high, that the government does it, the president does it, the governor does it, or the city council does it. No. People at the grassroots, ordinary people, organize and demand change. They fight for change, and that's why we got change. That's why we had an abolitionist movement. That's why we had uh, all kinds of social movements, workers' movements, uh, union movements. And I see the African-American freedom struggle in that way, that one of the reasons uh, it transforms the country is that it is indeed a grassroots bottom-up movement. It's people organizing for change. And then it's not what other people are doing for them. It's what they are doing for themselves. And that is how they become empowered, and that's how they push the government uh, to do what the government should do. So I'm a big advocate of um, social movements for change. Um, I get asked a lot uh, as a historian, well, what do we need to do? My idea is wherever you are, you have to do in your own personal and social circle um, what you think needs to be done. You need to connect up with people who are fighting for the similar kinds of things you're fighting for and then uh, you start, uh, you know, you start at that level, and then you connect outward. Um, I, in my own life, going back to my own personal narrative, um, the world that I grew up in was dismantled because black people fought and demanded that Jim Crow be dismantled. Um, Johnson, President Johnson, President Kennedy responded to the pressure that black people and their allies put on the government. And so to me, if we want a better world, we have to fight and organize for it. I don't expect the um, 1% to do it. I don't expect the billionaires to do it. I don't expect the presidents and the government to do it. I expect the people who, dem- who, who want the change, uh, they have to organize and fight for it. And that's, that's the only way it's going to happen.
0: Uh, what do you see today um, where you can draw parallels to uh, some of the uh, historical cases that you talked about?
1: I think Denise has already mentioned some of this material some of this stuff, but to me, black lives matter. Uh, the whole idea of trying to get us to think through sort of um, the un- for me unimaginable um, sort of horror of you know, every, the everyday surveillance of, 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 of just being black, you know, black while driving, black while shopping, um, you know, black while stepping out of my house.
2: Black while sleeping. Uh, <laughs>
1: black while sleeping. It's hard sometimes to wrap y- y- your mind around it. I think the mass incarceration crisis, as Denise has already spoken to, there's a whole history of this and the organizing um, to abolish prisons as we know them, I think, is something that needs to be dealt with because they are clearly not working. Um, but then you can talk about a whole range of institutions that need to be um, radically reformed or revolutionized, public schools, which are uh, failing us, um, you know, inequality and housing and all these other kinds of things. So it seems to me that Um, What we need is a revitalized social movement, mass movements around these things. Um, So um, a lot of what I talked about was sort of thinking through moments in African-American history where black people came together to fight, some of which um, succeeded, some of which didn't succeed at, at the moment, but laid the groundwork for subsequent struggles. And that's the other thing. You don't always get what you want, but you won't get anything if you don't try, if you don't fight. Um, and so um, it seems to me that fighting um, for uh, the future is is, is is the name of the game.
2: Um, I just want to say, because actually, Waldo and I met because I also work on social movements. And I had studied the social movement in the 19th century around temperance because it was it was huge, and it's something that's you know fairly little known. But I followed it up with a study in the of um, the 1980s and 90s of black communities who were again rising up about uh, alcohol and drug issues in their neighborhoods, and what Waldo was talking about just in terms of the initiative the um, persistence of, you know, neighbors of people rising up. For example, uh, right after, right before the Rodney King riots in L.A., there were a group of, you know, people that were concerned about liquor stores. And, you know, with the riots overnight, like over 200 of them were destroyed. And within weeks, that community had mounted a campaign. They had, like, circulated petitions with 35,000 signatures. And they organized to prevent the rebuilding of these stores. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and you know, that coalition went on. It's called the Community Coalition in Los Angeles. They went on to work for, um, they have a campaign so that students would get college requirements in high school. They called it the A to G campaign. And uh, Karen Bass, who was working with them at the time, Karen is now a congresswoman, so, and I, I studied seven communities across the country, including one in North Carolina, that were doing, they were doing, you know, movements around legislation, they were boycotting, they were doing the same kind of social action. So, and I think communities are capable of doing that and will, you know, they, they can't and will do that.
1: The other point that I would emphasize, and because I, I teach young people, is that youth. Young adults, uh, even uh, in the in the movement, children make a difference. They put their lives on the line, and a lot of the activism is actually youth activism. And so, uh, I'm always asked by young people, "Well, what can I do?" And I just point to the fact that uh, you know the Black Panther Party, founded and run by young people. You know, um, there are. And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee founded and run by young people. Uh, And if we go through our history, there are all these moments where it's not just the middle-aged and the older people, but uh, young people uh, taking up the struggle and pushing the struggle forward. So I think um, we have to empower our uh, youth to under, uh, empower them to uh, uh, and give them the tools uh, to to, um, to to make a difference in their own lives and, and and those around them. The other term that I'd like to throw out that I think is, is is important is human rights. Um, in any way in which I think about and understand human rights, um, people who have been dispossessed of their rights, are often at the forefront of defining and making real those rights. So the traditional ways in which we often talk about human rights are through organizations like the United Nations or organizations that are founded to protect uh, or promote that kind of understanding. But it seems to me that the history of human rights also has to encompass the global struggles of dispossessed peoples um, for for their own freedom, and so I am one of the things that I'm currently working on is sort of a, a project trying to think through the relationship between sort of a global history of human rights and the on the ground struggles of people through, throughout sort of the 20th century that shape. Our understanding of human rights, but don't often enter into how we think about human rights because we have sort of a very top-down, a- elite view of what human rights are. But human rights have to start with the people who are fighting for those rights.
0: Uh, and finally, I just want to know if you can talk a little bit about what you have in store for the rest of the academic year, spring semester, and also how... Uh, you know what you hope that this initiative uh, will have accomplished by the end of the year how you know how you um, view success
2: um well we have a full plate for uh, next for this spring. I know that we um, we will have we'll be having um, I think a half day symposium on reparations we'll be having talks on, Slavery and in various areas related to some of the othering and belonging um, faculty clusters, such as slavery and disability, slavery and LGBTQ experience, slavery and religion, and and scientific thought. Uh, so, yes. So we are, and and some things are still coming together. We're also planning to screen additional films, um, and I think toward the end of the semester we're going to be thinking about the next 400 years um, I don't want to say too much about what our culminating symposium might be but I think we will be looking forward to what how do we want to see the next 400 years
1: and if, if you're thinking about success to success to me is pushing forward uh, sort of uh, academic uh, sort of Berkeley based conversations, but community conversations, sort of the local conversation, the national conversation, and engaging in that and pushing it forward. And I think this initiative, in concert with similar and related kinds of initiatives, I think is actually doing that. And so it seems to me that this is an important moment, um, uh, national and international. And in terms of success, if we can just uh, enhance understanding and promote positive uh, programs and positive sort of ways to alleviate the problems that, um, you know, we continue to struggle with, then, you know, as, as long as we are engaged in struggle, as long as we are trying to fight the good fight, then I feel that this uh, effort will... Uh, be a successful one and, and thus far and in you know what we anticipate in the spring, I think it'll be part of that larger struggle.
2: Yeah. And I think um echoing some of what Waldo's saying about success, I think we have already heard some you know, some real direction for places where we need to go. Paul Butler was here um and we um, that was sponsored by graduate division, but Paul talked about prison abolition, and it was very powerful, and I think that's one of the directions we might need to think about. Um, we will be thinking about screening films that that make the case for reparations, and we're going to have a symposium thinking about what do reparations, how sh- what should they look like? Because My experience in delving more into this history has convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that reparations are necessary. Um, I recently looked at incarceration experiences in one of my classes, and we found that every group had been incarcerated, and some, like the Japanese Americans, there were reparations um, provided to them for loss of land, loss of housing, loss of income, and so... I think, um, as Waldo said, success will be defined in us uh, stimulating the conversations and providing some directions for where do we go from here to really uplift the African American population. And as he mentioned, that that is... Part of the general uplift that we need to see for marginalized people and that we've been at the forefront, African Americans have been at the forefront of that. And so that this initiative will help, you know, carry the country forward and help heal some of, heal some of the problems.
0: that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guests, Denise Hurd and Waldo Martin, who are organizing this year-long initiative here at Berkeley, looking at 400 years of black history in the U.S. Denise is a professor in the School of Public Health and the associate director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Waldo is a professor of U.S. history also here at Berkeley. The initiative is also being organized by the African American Studies and History Departments, the African American Student Development Center, and the Black Staff and Faculty Organization, all here at Berkeley. To learn more about this initiative and to see a list of upcoming events, videos from past events, news, and other resources related to the initiative, visit 400years.berkeley.edu. For a transcript of this episode and to listen to other episodes of Who Belongs, Visit us online at belonging.berkeley.edu/slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu/slash podcasts.